Here we are. It's the end of season three of the Improv Comedy Connection podcast. And let me invite you to drop a chair for a fireside chat with Joe Bill. Joe's a fixture in the global improv community, and he's got a long list of credentials. He's a co-founder of the Annoyance Theater in Chicago. He's had a 20-plus year run with Mark Sutton as Bass Prov, and he's in a host of duos with some of the best improvisers all over the world. He's a sought-after performer and teacher of the craft. So with all that experience in improv, we end up talking about parsley, green beans, over-flooding the zone, and all the other secret ingredients to improv done well. It's a bit chilly, so scooch up a little closer to the fire and listen in on the Joe Bill episode of the Improv Comedy Connection. Okay, let's focus. What the hell are we here to talk about? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we we can talk about a lot of things. Uh, You know, Joe, we've been talking about doing this for a while. Yeah. Um, I was thinking back, you know, you and I have gotten to know each other reasonably well, I would say, since... You know, we first started interacting a little bit before the summit and then afterwards. Um, and this has all been during this year, right? This has all been during this year that the magic that... Uh, <laughs> yeah, the magic interaction. <laughs> yeah, has has been. And it just occurred to me, just kind of thinking about the relationships that we have and uh, the, the, the smallening of the global improv community and all nice that kind of stuff. Nice use of the word smallening, Wit. Yeah, yeah. I feel like it's almost like a Simpsons word. Yeah. It embiggens all of us. Um, but, <laughs> um, but, you know, the we have different types of relationships, I mm-hmm. think. You know, we, uh, we've got those relationships that obviously go back or that you've spent all this time in person and things like that. And then you've got relationships where, you know, we've spent time together, but you end up having a specific conversation and then then when you're done you're done and then you hit hit stop or <laughs> turn yeah. off your video leave session yeah. and and you don't have that time where you're just together you know just yeah. with nothing to say yeah they're just like have a beer and sit by a fire right Midwest and then, guys. That's right, and then by a fire. I like that. Yeah, so, so the dog sitting in front of the fire too. Sure. Yeah, have some wassail. Um, so, and then you've got these uh, social media connections. Okay. Mm-hmm. So here, here's here's just I don't I don't know why this is what I thought to start with you at, right. but when you look at improv. Mm-hmm. Improv is certainly a lot about relationships and interpersonal reactions. Mm-hmm. How much of good improv is informed by the the nothing time that you have? Um, are are the fact that our relationships are kind of cut off in some ways from certain experiences? You think we're we're going to be atrophied <laughs> in part on the other side? I mean. <sighs> I think it's, you know, who are you and how do you pay attention? Mm -hmm. So that's kind of the subjective measurements I would like, I think I would put into this equation and feel free to like check my work as we go along (laughs) because, because I think there's like a couple of questions. There's a couple of questions. It's a weird place to start. I am starting at a weird place. Yeah, but I like it. I mean, that's like if we were doing comedians and and, uh, getting cars, getting coffee, then you would get me a weird car and then we would go get coffee. So your question is like a weird car. So actually, we started at the perfect place. (laughs) 
Because I'm a little weird. And I, I, I'd like to think that I've made you a little bit weirder in this year. Just <laughs> Well, that's that's at least something that we can offer to each other, right? <laughs> it's at least one more circle around the drain of... <laughs> yeah, <weirdness. laughs> yeah, of what the hell we're doing. I mean, so, so part, you know, the first... The first aspect of the question that hits me is, does familiarity breed better improvisation? And so that's not explicitly the question, but nope. the right. but the downtime would be a different type of familiarity than Zoom familiarity, than show familiarity, than in a group familiarity. Right. And so, you know, that's something that even all the way back to college that McNapier and I have, have argued about which in the 90s, it just kept us drinking. But, you know, Mick's, <laughs> my point of view is that familiarity breeds better improvisation and Mick's point of view is better improvisers breed better improvisation. And so I think mm-hmm. it's... Yeah, there's some of both there, I think. Yeah, I don't think it's I don't think it's A or B, right. but I think for sure it's some or both. And then I, you know, in a way, I think I would have to give to him that better improvisers probably breed better improvisation. But I would also say that if you have two great improvisers that know each other well and two great improvisers that don't, my money would be on the two great improvisers that know yeah. each other well as doing whatever the quote-unquote better show would be. Yeah, absolutely. It wouldn't preclude the others from doing a great show. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, there's some people that are, you know, this gets into like, in my mind, sometimes I look at people as either... Or what, what improv skill, what improv sensibility are you leading with? Uh, improvisational yeah. actor, improvisational comedian, mm-hmm. and then, you know, maybe subcategories or, you know, improvisational clown, improvisational storyteller. So it's, I would think that if you have two people that are wired and that lead, like, you know, two improv comedians. I mean, those are the guys that are touring. You know, that's like Brad Sherwood and Colin Mockery or something, right? Right, right. They've known each other forever. And my guess is they're not like, you know, they're not calling each other on Thursday and having tea. They've just done it a bunch. They know each other's moves backwards and forwards. And it's just like, hey, let's take the show on the road, right? Yeah. You know, but on, by the same token, it's like, I love seeing Colin Mockery so much just sitting in and doing shows with different theaters, with different people. And to me, that's what the spirit, the quote unquote spirit of improvisation is, which mm-hmm. is he's a person who cares. He's a person who embraces the fact that he's an improviser. He's a person who pays attention and, and is a caring person. So he kind of comes with that, you yeah. know, guy you would sit by the fire with energy Mm-hmm. So then maybe I would beg, you know, I would volley the question back to you. Like, do you have to have sat by a literal fire to have the knowledge of what it's like to sit by the fire with somebody? Right. And I think there's just things that you pick up um, mm-hmm. that you can't necessarily put into words. The deeper I think you get into improv, the more the words are failures, for describing what it is that you do and how to do it. I mean, you can get somebody started, yeah. but to get, get further at some point, they're just, I don't know. To me, it's, it's, you got, you got to experience it and have a, a broader sense than you can maybe crystallize into words or, or it's bigger concepts that drive what you do. And I think 
when you go on stage, there's this mixture of emotions and intentions and things like that, that when you stew it all together, has some impact on the moment, but it's unique. It's never happened before. And how do you describe that? It's that moment of the fire is one thing, but it's the moment of fire with Joe, yeah. with the dog or without. <laughs> right, right, right. You know, all that stuff together. Well, and it's, I mean, I, th- I think we're kind of talking about just intuitive stuff, which I kind of put under, how do you pay attention? I think for, like, when you and I met, for me, there was something very familiar right away before we really ever even mm-hmm. had a conversation. It was just kind of, and I think it, did we just first meet meet on a panel? Was that where we met? Or did we, like, correspond maybe? That could have been, yeah, I think somewhere in there. Yeah, but that's probably, again, where the magic happened sure (laughs) i didn't even know we had a dog but it makes total sense that we have a dog (laughs) but i think it's that thing where i don't know if it's like um you know is it like reading the signals of midwest guy that we have that thing could be that i know you played basketball yep um (laughs) I, I heard you were an up with people. I was an up with um, people. And you know what? I I probably saw you at oh, Pine Knob in Michigan in the Detroit area. <laughs> when were you there? Were you in Detroit? Are you from there? Originally? I grew up in Detroit, yeah. What and part? my grandparents would take Are you take a Livonia was, guy? No, Southfield, Michigan. Oh, Southfield. Got it. Southfield, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> but my grandparents took us, I think it was 4th of July. And it was a series of things. So as a kid, I'm mm-hmm. a little bit younger than you, not a lot younger, but as a kid, of course, up with people. Well, I'm there. <laughs> yeah, of course. It's a feel good. Maybe I'll get up in one of those audience participation numbers and do something wholesome and nice. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we were, so I only toured for a year and we did the halftime of Super Bowl 16 in Pontiac. In Detroit, yeah. And had we talked about this before? Or No, this... we haven't. No, no. I just tripped across this. Yeah. And, you know, it's... so we, we've known each other that way. You probably remember me, and I re- remember your role. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Are you in the, the Super... Can you pick yourself out of the Super Bowl halftime video? Uh, yes, you can. It's, okay. Um, if you so during the um, so we we do like a, a a tip of a tip of the hat uh, to uh, the '60s and Motown, right? So it's like we do like a medley of songs from the '60s and um, and Motown. So there's one time I have the giant red afro, so I'm like the John three sixteen okay. guy, only like just straight up <laughs> ginger. Right. Um, and like a really bad 19-year-old mustache. <laughs> okay. And so there's one point where we're doing like a little Beach Boys medley, and then it uh, then I'm in like a big line of people, and we're doing like a little yeah. sw- a, a, a tightening swirl, yeah, like yeah, uh, yeah. in Surfing USA. And then you yes. can see this giant froed freak head okay. bobbing up and down doing that. And then um, on... The in the Beatles medley, we sang All You Need Is Love and the Lights Go Out. And then, so there's four that halftime show is made of four different casts of Up With People cast A, B, C, and D. And we all rehearsed a quarter of the football field all out on tour. And then we came together when we stayed in, um, like 
Ann Arbor and Pontiac and uh, Gross Point and St. Clair Shores uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, with our host families. But we always, um, we rehearsed as four groups together in the, the practice field in Ann Arbor at U of M. Okay, okay. Um, so That's where I went to school. So oh, did I you? The, mm-hmm. oh, man. So the Big Ten. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're, bo- we're both Big Ten guys. You're a Michigan yeah, guy. I'm I played basketball. Guy. Yes, we both hate Ohio State. I'm assuming. Yes. Oh uh, well, yes, of course. Yeah, yeah uh, no, no. <laughs> well, my, my Ohio State friends that are that have uh, uh, that do improv in Columbus, they know that I don't care for Ohio State. They know that everybody doesn't care for Ohio State. Who would care right. for Ohio State? But that's a different <laughs> podcast. Different podcast. Um, and then, so ironically, yeah, on the bottom of L and Love, when they sang "All You Need Is Love," I'm the uh, we're holding up flashlights to spell it, and then I'm yeah. like waving my flashlight around. You know, okay. notice me, notice me. But, right. um, well, I was not looking for the big fro. Oh, <laughs> you wouldn't have known. Yeah. Yeah, you wouldn't have known. But yeah, that was, uh, it was another one of those, I say my up with people year was my best, my best year and my worst year. And then my annoyance decade was my best decade and my worst decade. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> I think that's how, that's how growth happens. Well, those kind of common experiences, I think, can make it, you know, easier to feel comfortable but at the same time there isn't there is at least for me and i think this is true for you a heightened level of understanding when somebody has a completely different experience Mm -hmm. as well you may have to pay a little more attention or whatever although we can also make assumptions yep all the time and we do and it turns out that that you're wrong and sometimes you don't realize it until years later for sure but then there's also you know because i mean if we're just if we're just doing games if we're just doing like short form that whole experience and athletics growing up also it mm-hmm. kind of informs the type of archetype you are within game within short form game mm-hmm. and so it's you know, there's different archetypical postures that happen in short form to heighten the audience's enjoyment. So, like, one is the cocky dude. You know, one right. is the point guard who wants the ball in clutch time. You know, I was always a two guard. I was always an assist guy. Okay. Um, and so I'm kind of like, um, you know, everything's cool. We'll see what's going on. And then if I get activated during the short form show into some type of frenzy, that's enjoyable for everybody. Then there's like the person who just like hates every, you know, I don't want to play this game. I'm terrible at this game. It's like uh, Ryan Stiles. Anytime they do a hoedown, you see him like throw a little mope tantrum in his (laughs) chair before he gets up and then buys in. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the beauty of game is that it's already constructed. So it's just, okay, if we play the game, we'll be fine. But then how we play the game, if we're aware of, you know, I love playing, doing short form games against the cocky point guard who's already got a puffy chest and like, I'm going to kick your ass at this game. And then I can play like, I don't know. I, yeah, I don't know. I, I, yeah, Just kind of use his or her weight against them. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. They're coming at me with karate. I'm coming back with judo. Right. 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 Yeah. Um, and then whoever wins the game, like I know how to play within that audience and enjoyment of the energy exchange proposition and then let the game be. I don't yeah. think about it that much, but I think it's something that's intuitive in me. It's like a hot read. It's like, and, well, I mean, I think that basketball is the most pure form of athletic improvisation that there is. And most uh, yeah. most other basketball players agree. Yeah. But yeah. it's 
to me, I think it's I think in, in seeing how an improv show is going in a group is very much like being aware of if if they're playing man to man or zone. You want to go mm-hmm. there with me? <laughs> yeah. Well, I think I think that's right because if you not to get we don't have to get too deep into the sports aspect. Yeah, but I mean, it, let's go like at least two steps because that's true. <laughs> <laughs> but if have. you end up if you end up running you know running an offense, the mm-hmm. way you practice it is okay. You go here, you do this, you move down, you know, towards the set of pick here, blah blah blah. You've got all these prescribed things you do, and sometimes it's you can go left, right, or forward. You know, whatever your options are. Yeah. But where it really works is. When you're also able to know, well, everybody's flowing, expecting things to go this way, and you and the other person who's got the ball mm-hmm. are able to, at the same time, decide we're breaking the rule, we're breaking the pattern, and now you're, you know, you're wide open to get a basket. I'll I'll go one more piece of specificity, and then we can back out if you want. But if you right, know, you like a, go motion or wheel. Well, or... I'm just saying, like like attacking a two-three zone or attacking yeah. any any zone. There's a couple of principles on how you yeah. attack a zone. So right. you, you you know reverse the ball, attack the seams, overload the zone. So those are three yeah. practical ways. And so it could be that they're playing a really loose zone, so attacking the seams makes sense. So you're attacking the seams and you're running your you know like a triangle, like you're running your motions. You're attacking the seams with the ball and without the ball. And so all of a sudden you're establishing a motion of way things are going. And then all of a sudden an overload shows itself and you kick the ball out and now the zone's overloaded. Somebody's got a natural screen set and then your, your shooter's going to take a shot there. So you're breaking Mm -hmm. the pattern of attacking the seams and you're finding that, you know, sometimes if you're running a, a motion within a zone, the purpose is to overload. Right. And then attacking the seams presents itself. So if you kind of know all the principles, this is to me, this is like in long form, like um, like in an opening or where there's eight people trying to collaborate on the same piece of um, source material. Mm-hmm. You know that if everybody's talking over each other and everything's chaos, there's certain things that to me, it's like, what's the metaphor for what I can teach a team if and when they find themselves in chaos in an opening? to help find clarity for themselves and then presentational efficiency for the audience. Mm-hmm. Okay, now I'm going to take a breath because my coffee <laughs> just kicked in. But I, I love seeing the recognition on your face that you're tracking with me. Right. I know. We've, <laughs> we've lost 90% of we've our We've lost 90% <laughs> of the improv audience, however. <laughs> it's like Yeah, but I got it. Now let's go to a 131. Let's contextualize to this to a 131. It's, it's, really, it's really tough because if those two wing guys are tough... You know, the, the guy, the guy back in back is probably just a shot blocker. So somehow. Oh yeah. That was my role. I uh, just sit there, clean it up when everybody else failed. <laughs> like in, a, in an effective shot blocking way or like a hatchet man type of way. Oh uh, no, I was, I was a pretty good shot blocker. How tall are you? <laughs> six, six. Are you? I am. Yeah. Oh wow. I'm six, five. Yeah. First, See, yeah. There we go. I thought you were a little shorter than me, but look at that. We're yeah. So so did you play center? I did. Four four and five. Yeah. Played yeah. those a little bit. I was I was a two, three, and a four, but mostly like mm-hmm. two and three because I was a passer and then kind of like floor general. You know who's enjoying this conversation? Patty Styles. 
Oh, and she she, she also played Hooper. basketball. Yeah, and we've and <laughs> oh, I didn't know that. And to bring it full circle to the original proposition, some of how we've yeah. gotten very close is just sitting around having a beer, you know, around a fire or not. Right, right. And even before we ever played or performed together, you know, the initially it's like we're from these quote unquote two different schools, and yeah. You, uh, we're in Austin, and how are they going to get along? And da, da 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 And then she said, "Do you want to have a beer?" And I said, "Yeah, let's have a beer. That'd be great." And we had like eight right. beers and just sat on the floor and talked. Yeah, yeah. And Patty talked some about that. Uh, you know, those uh, first shows, the hour play shows that you guys have done, and and also the first time that uh, people were like, "Oh, here, here we go. Here's the yeah. clash of two improv worlds," which is it's kind of interesting how expectant people sounded like they were about all of that. But you guys ended up spending time just together. Yeah. And your plan for the show, if I understand it right, was pretty much just eh, let's kind of wing it in some ways, wasn't it? Yeah, I don't you didn't plan a big format or anything. Yeah, right? yeah. I mean, we didn't. I mean, I feel like we both sensed that we could have all the conversations in the world before we got there, but we're not going to know till we get there. And we mm-hmm. never had that conversation, but we both, I think we both sensed that that's what we believed, which I think is yeah. true. Which yeah. is also why, like, when you're, if we're going to, you know, fold back in this idea of like social media and people you know, chat rooms and chat groups and panels and whatever about improvisation. And, you know, I'm the guy that always, you know, I'm, I'm, well, it also costs me less time, but I, I usually, <laughs> I'm just as likely to write the words. It just depends after any, in any thread, mm-hmm. because I feel myself being activated into like the conversation or people want an answer. They want some type of an empirical definition, empirical approach. They want a, the perfect label or what's the exact prescription. And that's yeah. not, that's like explaining to somebody what the song Bohemian Rhapsody is versus hearing the song Bohemian Rhapsody. Right. It's it's not the it's not the same. So what we did was we basically just talked about Dell and Keith about uh annoyance and impro Melbourne mm-hmm. and just like our different friends and mm-hmm. kind of like comparing people from each of our worlds that the other one didn't know and oh, you know, we're back to archetypes. And I tend to, you know, one of the things that really makes me feel older is I think the, like the Gen Xers and younger, they hate labels. They don't want to be labeled as anything. And I'm somebody that just uses labels to give myself, I think, as you said, you know, like I'll make a guess. So like if you're from the Midwest or like whatever state you're from, I can, I've got a container of predictions at least right. references that you that I might be able to use to connect with you to serve you up to like whatever, mm-hmm. and then yeah, I, I mean it's it's uh you never know until you're there, right? You and your experience counts for something, but I mm-hmm. think that experience as an improviser, you mean? Yeah, I, I mean it, it's yeah. I've always said if if I could figure out how to cheat experience. Yeah. I mean, that then you could truly be, you know, make a run at like, I'm the greatest improv teacher in the world. Yeah. But, you know, until well, then. That's a lot of what that's I'm a lot of what's going teacher. on. Right. Is trying to, to cheat experience. Yeah. And I think there's also an aspect of 
You can avoid uh, what some might refer to as mistakes, but there's value in learning. What do you mean by that? Like, like to avoid mistakes, how? In, in the present context, are you talking? In, in improv, I'm talking about. So if okay. um, if you if you go back and look at what improv was like way back in the 70s or 60s or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, there's a lot more like scenario aspects to things yep. and um, and uh, directive aspects that went to it and da 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 da. Well, mm-hmm. then you start to go more freeform and all these kind of things. Well, people developed. Well, hey, don't um, don't deny, don't say no, don't do this, don't do that, uh, or do this, do that, mm-hmm. and all of those things. If we go back to like the what is it, the Westminster Kitchen, uh, Westminster Place Kitchen Rules or whatever, <laughs> where Elaine May writes down the rules for improvisation with uh, Ted Fleck- Fleckner. Fluckner, whatever his name was. I can never um, remember his name. But the way it was, the way I understood that is they were saying, these things tend to work better on stage. And so they were kind of ways to tilt. Well, they learned that by seeing that when you did the opposite, it didn't work as well. Yeah. So if you end up going into an improv class and someone says, N- don't deny or don't block or whatever, well... Okay, and you if you did that every single time, mm-hmm. you will have followed the rule, but you will not have understood why the rule is there, which is ultimately what it's about, because the rule itself falls short of what you get through the experience. I see what you're saying. Yeah, that's right. They um, in in seeing X number of scenes that go poorly. Yes, a running theme that Elaine May saw was they seem to deny the offers they're making to each other or when you agree that works better that works better but but i'll bet like somewhere there has to be either mike nichols or elaine may talking about what it's like to work with the other one and i and my i don't like i don't think i've heard any like extended interviews about it about that but i'll bet if they existed what they talk about has nothing to do with the rules. I'll bet it has everything to do about your initial question, which is that downtime or that off time or that energy or that intangible or how, you know, I'm, I'm yeah. sure so, some of it was, you know, the scenarios and stuff from the early days, um, which, yeah, I, I mean, but it's it's crazy how improvisation, it, it is a we'll see proposition. And everybody wants the rules because everybody wants to be successful at it. Right. But like what is even like even success is somewhat subjective. Well, there's certainly a a lot of different ways that you could measure it. Yeah. It doesn't help when everybody is measuring with different rulers. That's right. Right. Because then everybody is not driving towards the same goal. And it seems to me, I just, I just heard, um, just heard a little conversation with two other improvisers that I tripped across and someone talked about playing to crowds of like 25 or 30 people Uh and and that being sort of the common experience well if 25 or 30 people are at least it was for them you know sure sure sure. sort of yeah it like I have that file folder in my head with others but yeah I know what that is (laughs) yeah so but if if that is the experience will then from a drawing in an audience, that's not going to be sustainable unless you do 24 
half hour shows in, in a day or whatever and charge for each one of them. You know, it's just the market is not driving it, which is one measurement. The artistic yeah. experience um, is subjective, so it's kind of hard to know. Yeah. Do you, um, well, let me back up one step. Okay. When when you think of improv and all these different schools, do you do you feel like we're we're going to the same destination? Like the the most successful improv or the purest improv would all be the same if every approach got to its ultimate conclusion. My quick answer is no, but what it would. If there is some empirical, if there is something that's present in all improvisation, then the first things that come to my mind, amongst others, I'm sure we could dig up, but the first things Mm -hmm. that come to my mind is like improvisation is a process. If people are paying attention and responding, then to some degree, they're involved in improvising. And most improvisation is not art, in my opinion. Improvisation is an art medium. Like, uh, I think you've heard me say this. I think it's an art medium Mm -hmm. like paint. But just Mm -hmm. because you walk on a stage and make stuff up certainly doesn't make it art. Mm -hmm. To, you know, to more than just a handful of people who would say it is art. And in this scenario, those who would say it's not and those who say it would are both correct subjectively. And so that's why, you know, I... I'm looking forward to getting back to another thread where I posed a, a similar sort of paradox and... Um, uh, I'm going to get off of that. Let's stay right here present. Let's stay present in this. But, but I, I I think that what's the context of how we're improvising? What's Mm -hmm. the, why are we, what's the answer to why are we improvising? And then can we, I think it's, I think it's so important to just embrace that many things can be true at the same time. So just because I might view somebody as a hobbyist doesn't mean that they regard themselves that way. But it's true. But it could be, tr- uh, I might regard somebody as a hobbyist and they might regard themselves as an artist. And I, and I say we're, we're both right. Mm-hmm. And so a typical online argument would be rooted around this fallacy that, that aims at everything else, except we're both right. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's I, I agree with that I think there's also and I wonder if this is reflective of the online participation of improvisers I think you could probably categorize improvisers um, obviously not binary this way but some will be very positive and no mistakes no no bad offers, no this, that, the other thing. Everything is is good. And that's obviously a, a high exaggeration. And then there will be those who might be, well, who will be uh, saying more critical sounds like I'm either being um, judgmental on one side or the other. But Does, um, does optimist and pessimist work for the ruler you're trying to describe? Um, it has those tones, I think, in some ways. You know, because uh, I I feel like there can be bad improv. <laughs> yeah. And there are some who feel like, no, um, there isn't. And the people who are more positive or who will push through 
will be more likely, I think, to be online, whereas those who are more pessimist might be less likely to be online or less positive. I think those that are manic are more likely to be online and those that are depressed are less likely to be online. <laughs> yeah, right, right. I There's think, lots of reasons. I, yeah. I think those... So I'll stop there. Like, I believe you and I could spend five more minutes coming up with kind of, you know, like binaries, as you said, in this regard, about right. who you're more likely. And, and I think optimist, pessimist, you know, can work. Um, well, this is how it relates, not, not to interrupt, but this is, this is kind of how it relates to where I... Uh, started with you is I think your online personality uh, one huge difference or what can be a huge difference between your online projection versus your in-person projection mm -hmm. is that you can curate it so much more because you can decide I'm going to engage now because I feel like I can I can interact in a way that is consistent with the persona I want to put forward and so when I'm happy and positive, mm -hmm. I'm out there. If I'm down and uh, withdrawn or whatever, or I just feel like, eh, I don't know, then I'm going to put myself to the side. So I can see, I could see how, I could see how that thesis is true. I can also... See uh, how it's not true. This is going to be... Well, well but, it's, but, but in a way it's apples and oranges, because the I'm, medium, I'm not asking you to agree with me. No, 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 so. no. I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm listening to you. I'm paying attention, yes. and I'm, yes. and I'm, I'm formulating a response. <laughs> though some of it is, so like my base quick response is they're two different mediums, and it's like so like I was a tele, I was a telecommunications, uh, you know, radio, radio, TV performance and production major, and so you know, 101 and a theater minor. So 101 is when you're on a screen, it's forced focused for the audience. When you're live, it's selected focus for the audience. Yeah. So that yeah. is when an audience is watching a play, they can choose wherever they want to give their focus. Whereas mm -hmm. online, you're showing them, look here, because this is what I'm showing you. Yes. So yeah. when you say more curated, I think what I would, like, I would highlight the word more and then like write right. above it in parentheses differently curated. So the way I curate myself online is different. The way I curate myself for a camera is different than the way I curate myself on stage. So one way I curate myself on stage is being mindful of projection, let's say. Mm -hmm. or, um, and everything else that we know is quote-unquote acting skills, right? Yeah. One way I might curate myself on a screen you know, it might be like, like, what's my makeup? What's my costuming? What's my background? What's, is there somebody to do that for me? What's the overall look of the piece? Mm -hmm. And I'm not, you know, my curation would be a little more laissez-faire because I'm not as visual and I don't have the, the visual taste that some people have. So I don't, on the one hand, the word more curated doesn't work for me, but I could see how it works for you and how that makes sense for you. And my guess is you can see how differently curated works for me, even though more curated might might work more for you. So what what, what I'm arguing is they're both true, and it's and right. and one is not better than the other. One is not more true than the other. However, isn't our isn't our brain as an improviser like the definition of creativity is being able to look at the same thing in different ways? Yeah, I think that's part of it. I also feel like. 
the curation aspect of it is a level of self-consciousness which can get in the way or be a wall that you put up between your true self and what you project. So when I say more curated, I guess part of what's behind using that term is at some point you lose energy for the curation because you're it just it takes energy to keep that wall up. Uh, you're saying at some point you lose energy online or just in general when you're improvising? Just in general. And since if you're spending more time together in person, the wall will come down because you're not holding it up as much. Or at least ideally you would. And and I would I would like to think, even though I know this is not fully true of any of us, that you could find a way both personally and in uh, or on the stage to show yourself more fully because there's freedom in that. I, I view that as a goal of improv mm -hmm. and also a goal in interpersonal relationships. What is the goal? What's the goal? In the, improv? the goal is to, uh, to have a true person-to-person connection that is not filtered through whatever touch-ups you wanted to do on your appearance it's just like this is this is me authentic like an, it's an authentic connection without the trappings of presentation yeah that yeah. are the that, fact that i was clever on something i you know that's that's it's nice when you get recognized for that kind of stuff but that's just that's a trick right and sure. you can have fun with that laughter but in a true interpersonal relationship you would like someone to see you and feel like i you know I, that's somebody i i connect with i care about you know i can see that person they can see me but our walls are usually so much higher and i guess i wonder whether they end up being in some ways higher online which will cause a reshuffling when we get back together in some ways because now we're spending this time and we're not shutting off the screen. You know, we're going to the fridge to get a snack and then we're coming back to the fire. By the way, it's your turn to feed the dog. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I wonder if... Hmm, I wonder if it's easier for an audience to suspend their disbelief in a live theater than it is... Well, uh, watching Zoom, because I'm talking about improvisation, I think the whole point of movie making is to seduce them into suspending their disbelief. Right. But in this, you know, in this form of improvisation of, you know, in the land of Zoom, I'm fully aware and I have, uh, you know, uh, good friends and, and, and really brilliant improvisers and teachers that I respect who, who really put a lot of wait on look everybody knows we're making this up everybody knows we're in a theater everybody knows there's a bar back there and a blender's going to go off and da, da 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 so as long as we're on stage let's just embrace that that's what we're doing and let's not take you know the illusion that we're creating too seriously and that's not how i think to me it's just like how do we get them to forget that they're even hearing a margarita blender in the background because this moment we're playing is so compelling well why do you want the suspension of disbelief why don't we unpack that a little bit? I think if you're playing where comedy is a consequence and not the goal, then I think it's an important piece of creating tension. Because I think suspending disbelief means they're believing, quote in quotes, 
the relationship, the exchange, the way you're affecting each other, the truthful give and take between the people, forgetting that they're in a bar or like at least slipping back to their subconscious, there's a bar, there's a margarita being made. So now the tension of their believing this interaction then gets to play into their theater of the mind where the audience is always writing the story. The audience is always putting themselves in one or, or other's shoes of, on the stage. And then the tension we're breaking within that disbelief, if they're relating to us and we're not, quote unquote, trying to be funny is, and in a way it's the same math in comedy, but mm-hmm. the tension that's broken is, they just said something that I knew they were going to say, or they just said something as a result of how they feel that I could have never seen coming, but wow, it makes so much more yeah. sense. So I think that's the singular, maybe most important reason why suspension of disbelief is important in that context. I, I think it's much less important in, in comedy or in game. But if you're playing scene, I know when I'm doing bass prop with Mark, mm-hmm. it's important even though they're just seeing two guys on a stage with fishing poles and a cooler, it's important to continue to behave in our delusion that we are actually fishing because we've learned over 20 years that people are right there in the boat, I put in quotation marks, with us. Even with comedy, if you're able to add the realism and the connection, you have a deeper well to pull from. That's right. So the the suspension of disbelief to me in some ways is is when the walls are down and you're in the moment and it's real to you or as real as you can get it. Yeah. Because then the audience is also seeing it as real and now you are you're you're in this world that is levitating above or somewhere in the ether. That is different than where your feet are physically planted and where they are physically sitting. Mm-hmm. Online, you start with a a bit of a a barrier of sorts if you try to create the sense that you are now in a three dimensional place, as opposed to if we were doing a scene like we're just doing an interview. You know, mm-hmm. you and I are are going to do a live scene as if I'm interviewing you and I'm whatever character I am, you're whatever character you are. Mm -hmm. That can be very believable. And the fact that we have different backgrounds and you're in this rectangle and I'm in that rectangle doesn't matter because that, that part of the reality you don't have to make up. But if we're going to somehow create this sense that you and I are next to each other as co-pilots on a plane, for instance, mm-hmm. then the fact that we have these different backgrounds is an additional barrier that we have to overcome to get the suspension of disbelief. So mm-hmm. I I think, you know, for me, when I look at online scenes based on the kind of technology that we have, if the goal is audience, this the suspension of disbelief, then we've got to decide how far back from the starting line, are we willing to start with that? Yeah, that's a good point. I think the, um, like our different backgrounds are just like the blender making a margarita, right? Yeah. Well, especially like if you have your own uh, uh, graphic behind you yeah. and you lean back, well, now somebody's pushed the blender on high. And right, right. Your frappe yeah, and your, is where coming. Did your, where did your arm go? <laughs> right. or, or a third of your head. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I get a hole that shows up in my head sometimes because my window is on my left when I, when I do stuff. <laughs> so in that 
in that case because we tend to have we tend to be physically limited in what we can do. There's very few of us that can get like a full body shot. Right. Um, so we're kind of, you know, waist up. Not to... at 6'5 and 6'6. Six, six, anyway. No. Yeah. No, not <laughs> us. These big heads, you know, we take up a lot of room. <laughs> so if they're, if we're going to get them to have all the stuff they can visually notice drop into the background, then really it's, it's not just what we're saying to each other, but how we're saying it. Mm -hmm. So in a way, the theater part of it is, are we affecting each other? You know, are we keeping it quote unquote honest or are we, are we reverting to the tricks that we know that are the math of creating tension and breaking tension that we might call, you know, structured established game or, or game of the scene that we establish within the conversation or, Right. You know, worst case scenario, just a run of puns, which is, yeah. you know, I, God bless people that love them, but I'm not one of them. <laughs> and I, uh, I totally know the switch in my head. I have to throw that if I'm playing with a pun person, mm-hmm. it's like doing bunny bunny before a show. I freaking hate that warm up. <laughs> but if, if that's what we're doing, then I'm in because, yeah. because if I'm, if I'm going to be worth my salt as an improviser, my opinion stays outside the door and I'm into whatever everybody else is into. And mm-hmm. I'm not, I can't be that guy. I can't be the contrarian comedian because I think I'm kind of a life contrarian. <laughs> <laughs> well, why do you think you can't be? Uh, yeah. I don't mean unable. I think I'm unwilling. No, I know you're able. Yeah, but why do you think uh, you shouldn't be a contrarian that way? Well, it depends. <laughs> I think <laughs> I've been playing with experienced people. I can be the contrarian, but I also know my energy. And yeah, if you're, I mean, you're, so we're both tall guys. So, you know, when a, when a big freaking guy like one of us goes contrary, it holds a little bit more weight. Well, you that's know, true. Theatrically, comedically, a, a, a short, angry person is funnier than a tall, angry person. A tall, right. angry person is a monster that needs to be slayed ever since, you know, David and Goliath, I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, now i got to watch out for slingshots. Sl- yeah, <laughs> literally and figuratively. If you haven't noticed yeah. before, just open your eyes. It's happening all the time. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. But there is a tendency, I think, to try to soften, just for the sake of the performance, uh, some of those reactions. Yeah. Or, or just even in person. I mean, you know, I try to project in a way. I know, you know, a lot of, a lot of bigger folks who care about these things sure. will, will want to make sure that they are approachable or, or not seen as... Uh, well, it's that, it's the, um, I'm sure you had the experience. We've never talked about this, but I'm sure you've had the experience in grade school where you get the, the class pictures taken and you know to go to the back row in the middle and stand on the top <laughs> riser. Yeah, I was always the tallest kid in my class. I was taller than my first grade teacher. I was, there was always one girl that was the same height as me and we were always next to each other in the back. It was either Beth Grant or Elaine McCain and we were next to each other in the back row on the on the risers. Uh-huh. And then everybody wants to make you a couple. And when you're, you know, like, I, I just wanted to, play, you know, I just wanted to dunk someday. I wasn't right, worried about right. girls or anything. I just wanted to dunk a basketball. Yeah. That is a good feeling, isn't it? Oh, God, it's the best. I, it I, really I, is I dunked strong. in a game once. And it was, I, I oh. stole the ball and I broke away. And then everything just went zen, man. And it was, oh. There, there is a zen 
ness to it. I still, I can see every single moment of stealing the ball on the other end, going coast to coast, yep. rising up, and yep. I still see the guy falling back as... <laughs> Trying to take a charge? Put it down. Oh, he was not going to take this, yes. this rumbling You were postering that guy. Uh, I, I was, but you know, there. <laughs> it's funny you mentioned sort of the, the zen aspect to it. That's one of the things I think with with sports and improv where they can kind of co- coincide is where you you lose that self-consciousness and you're mm-hmm. just it's just happening. Yep. I know probably in my best game ever I was sick as a dog and I feel like I've had good shows when I'm sick. Me you too. Know? <laughs> uh <laughs> wouldn't do that today. Um but you know it just sort of you Again, you just you can't sustain the energy yeah. to think about all the other stuff, whether that's the crowd, the audience, your co-performers. It's just like I got I just got to do this little bit yeah. for a short period of time, and then I'll collapse later. Yeah, it's um, my father was also a coach, so being raised by a coach, like I, uh, the mm. the most improv relevant lesson that I learned was to understand your role. Like to Mm -hmm. understand your role within the team. And so, and your role changes depending on the team that you're playing on, like in your strengths relative to other people's strengths, your weaknesses relative to other people's weaknesses. You know, knowing Mm -hmm. that somebody, you know, can score 30 a game but can't play a lick of D is like, I know I'm going to be, have an eye open to help out and, you know, double team that guy if this guy drives baseline. Right. I love <laughs> I'm just thinking that everybody who skipped forward is like, what? What? They're, They're still, still talking, talking about, about basketball. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry, improv nerds. <laughs> but it's but it's but like understanding your role. I was always I was kind of always a person that was try to be a ten and ten person. Like score ten points, get ten rebounds. You know, and then and then just help out, help out, help out, help out, help out. And so and I'm you know just about any time I do. A podcast, you know, I I say that improvisation is a service industry, and that's that is the one thing from my childhood that, you know, to be a team player means you're serving what's up. And the story of when I was sick, I was so freaking sick. I like I didn't know if I had the flu or what was going on. I was in sixth grade, and I I normally would average eight to ten points a game. I scored twenty eight points because if I didn't shoot, I was going to throw up. <laughs> and, and it's like I couldn't miss. It was insane. But it becomes, you know, do you have the confidence to step up and be the steak on the platter? And do you have the confidence to be, you know, a healthy sprig of parsley if that's what your role is on the plate that night? Right. And either one of them are dangerous if your if your confidence isn't there and if your ego needs something, you know? In a way, like, I mean, it's a metaphor, but I think it's a good one. It's like there's one signal that you might be getting into the realm of being an advanced improviser is if you can be just as happy being the steak as being the parsley on any given night. And it's not mm-hmm. about it's not about proving anything, which happens after time. You know, like once you've been doing it for 20, 25 years, you, there's really nothing left to prove to anybody. Or, you know, if you do, then you need to switch it, your therapist. But it's just like, how can I serve up? everybody how can i serve up whoever's in front of me how can i uh we learn the rules to forget the rules we you know being in the zone or getting that zen thing in the middle of a basketball game is a consequence of muscle memory experience and savvy in the moment right Mm -hmm. we're not 
yeah, yeah, we're not thinking of it like it is like to use my other frame of reference, like in an engineering, tactical, analytical way. We're just in the jazz of the flow of the piece and what's going on. Do you think there is a way to create positions in improv or I mean, I know you just described the sense that you ought to be able to be the steak or the parsley or the potatoes or mm-hmm. the you know the the fork or whatever the it is that is yellow. needed. Yep. Yeah. But there are certain things or skills or attributes or ingredients that maybe some are stronger at than mm-hmm. others mm-hmm. or that audiences will respond at least more strongly to certain things um, than others. Mm-hmm. But I feel like every improviser almost ha- is, is taught or has to be or is expected to be a master of every single piece and mm-hmm. and that that does set up people for failure in some ways, maybe beyond like if you know in basketball, okay, mm-hmm. this this is your skill set, so we'll put you here. We we just don't have that really in improv. Don't shoot unless nobody's guarding you and you're <laughs> right in the paint. <laughs> I'll tell you a quick story because I coached my my son's team, and there was this kid the first day. He was so gangly; his legs and arms went everywhere. And uh-huh. poor TJ, he really wanted to be good, and he ended up being okay. But he asked me. I coached him for three years, and we're driving in the car to a game, and he says, "Coach, if I get a rebound." Can I dribble the ball up? I'm like, no, 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 TJ, get it to the car. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, well, what about this happen? I said, okay, so TJ, let's say that everybody on the other team has fallen down on the ground. <laughs> You've got the ball, okay? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Get it to a guard. <laughs> get the guard. <laughs> There's just no way he was going to bring it up. Oh, God. <laughs> Yeah. But what do you think about positional improv? Uh, and then we can explore positionless basketball. <laughs> I mean, I think there's probably some contexts. I would be curious to hear from people in trios or, or four-handers, like where they perceive themselves to fit in. Because mm-hmm. I think some of them... Like some people play very peas in the pod, right? So yeah. we're we're threes, whatevers. But I'm thinking too. Again, I think it like I think it kind of comes down to the personnel. You know, it, yeah. it, it's that thing in sports where we say, you know, you're you're I'm going to show you how to run my offense versus okay, what do we have? What are the skills? Let's let's right. design around the skills. And and yeah. when I direct, especially internationally, because I like I take that, you know, I take it probably too seriously where. If I direct, I want everybody to be seen. I want everybody to feel like they got their spotlight dance. And I don't know what that is until mm-hmm. I get a chance to read everybody, try to feel the chemistry, and in never enough time, make my best guesses about how to quote unquote structure what this piece is going to be that is really about a playbook of options. And I know if, like, I know if I've got two young kids and they're they're in a group and they're... Uh, <laughs> And do I want to be specific about this? People will know from the one festival, but there's one festival okay. where, where I direct, there's a format I direct called the scramble. Okay. And it's kind of like a bat with the lights on. And it's really just like all the tricks I've, you know, gained as a coach and a director. That's like assess the people that are here. You know, step one, how many languages? Let's make sure we get all the different languages in. Step two, what type of improv does everybody do? What do you love? What do you hate? Anything that anybody hates, it's in the back of my head because 
anything that's a hate, but then somebody else, like some people hate singing, some people love singing. So if singing's going to happen, then one of my tricks is there will be the equivalent of a, of a spotlight dance in Soul Train of like, you know, when the singing will happen. If the singing, then you yeah. guys don't have to, but they can. So I very much coach and direct two people's strengths. Mm -hmm. And then I account for if there's weaknesses or dislikes in the context of a like an international festival. I try to protect um, the disparities where one person's joy might be another person's hell. So it's still their joy is invited in with the other person's hell. You know, it's like teaching tolerance and acceptance and, you know, all the Buddhist lessons that, you know, Rosowski mm -hmm. and I can both ramble on about. What if that person's joy is the audience's hell? <laughs> oh, man. That's a valid question. Well, then it's on me. And again, I always tell my cast that I'm directing, if you succeed, it's 90% on you and 10% on me. But if you fail, it's 90% on me and 10% on you. And that might mm -hmm. be unfair, but it's like I've noticed that that seems to be a component of the most successful directorial things that i do which is just setting people up to succeed right i think so i mean and you yeah. never know i mean that's for, for me the biggest nerves is like I've, I've got an international cast have i done enough and then you're holding your breath and you know that one person's going to step out and they're going to do that thing that everybody hates but it's like is it doing harm to anyone is it is it making anybody you know feel marginalized or bad or whatever and you know if it's let's say it's just like this guy wants to ride his unicycle and juggle in the show. I've never had this, but let's call it that. You know, I, I really, I'm from whatever country. I, my English is, is not good, but I'm the best unicycling, juggling improv, improviser yeah. in this country. So I want to do yeah. that. Well, it's on me to figure out how to get that out. Even if half the people are like, unicycles, juggling, what? Then it's like, that's to me... I, it's it's hard enough for me to, to handle praise and adulation, but in those times where it seems like I do feel like if this seems impossible, there's no way this is going to fit in the show. This is a terrible idea. I'm a sick person. I'm like, okay, we're going to figure out how to get that unicycle in this freaking show. So as you're describing that, yeah. it occurs to me that the people whose approval, it's not like you're driven towards the approval, but the people whose approval is part of the measuring stick here are the performers so if you're at a festival you've got maybe a week maybe yeah uh, maybe not probably yeah, like six hours days, right? usually six, yeah, six to nine hours that. is the usual right so your goal in that moment is all right i've got these eight ten people in front of me i got to figure out how to give them a good experience and i think the audience is secondary in that description because if the unicycle, and I know I, I have a sense, I've just a, I've got 14 <laughs> examples of unicycling <laughs> in my mind. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I'm breathing all 14 with you right now. Right. If you feel like I got to put that out, well, that's for the unicyclist as opposed to, yeah, we got we got to get a unicyclist out there because the audience will eat that up, right? That's right. I'm serving, that's right. And I think that's probably, and I'm still doing that for the audience, but I'm doing that as like, I think that's one of my core co uh, annoyance co-founder things. Okay. Where an audience's enjoyment is still going to be a consequence of us taking care of ourselves. Mm -hmm. And so an improv is meant to be inclusive, not exclusive, even though some 
some of the greatest improv sh shows seem exclusive because there's a level of skill that not many can attain. And there's no mm -hmm. harm in admitting that, owning that, pointing to that, whatever. But yeah, I'm probably, it's, it's not like I won't be without the thought, the audience is going to love this. But my <laughs> first thought is, how do we accept that this unicycle and juggling thing is what lights this person up so that's going to be a part of the show and how can we accept any reaction to that happening including a negative reaction or response yeah. to that well and the context is different because it is it is a festival yep the festival is is i think tilts more towards the performers than the audience than a kind of a local improv theater yeah, where that's right. You would tilt more towards the audience than than yeah. Jam, I mean, jam shows. You, you know, one one. This is uh, Bill Arnett has a great just his take on how improvisation is also spectacle is yeah. is also really good, and it's 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 another one of those things that doesn't completely vibe with me, but I I understand and I get all of it. So it's like it's another. This is also true, mm -hmm. but at a festival, it's particularly the the. the it's one of the greatest spectacles. Can these people not only get along, mm -hmm. but they can they collaborate on something so that we enjoy the collaboration and we enjoy the show within the show of like, how are these people getting along? Mm -hmm. And how is, that, how is that guy from Amsterdam speaking Dutch to that girl from Tel Aviv who's speaking, you know, Hebrew? To, and how are they doing a scene in two different languages and yet everybody seems to know what's going on. Like that's the quote unquote magic trick. Right. And then you never know if it's going to work until it does or it doesn't. Yeah, right. Well, that also I think relates to, and I don't know if you said this today, but I don't know if this ties to the annoyance or this is just something that has uh, become part of the improv lexicon mm. that the, the product is the process yep. in improv. Yep. And I think that, I think that's true for improvisers but i don't know that that's i think it's partially true for audiences and i think it's partially not true for audiences yes because they don't know they're here to see improv mm -hmm. they're here to see a product because that's what they they pay ticket for a product right and if and if what if the ticket says comedy then that's the product yeah and so there's myriad processes that go into yielding co the product of comedy and there's, it just depends on who's doing it. And that's the process. Like, how will these people get along? When, mm -hmm. when Middleditch and Schwartz did their, their Netflix show, it was so funny to me to see the younger people like breaking it down and, you know, is this good improv people or People got pretty exercised about it, didn't they? They got a little bit, you know, this is, it's like, it's, everybody shut up. This is great. It doesn't mean it's great improv, but it doesn't mean it's not great improv because it is great improv and it's not great improv. But it's these two guys saying, look, you don't have to have Drew Carey or somebody else with a buzzer. You know, this is something that that. Yeah. All, all you need is is a running uh, character on Parks and Recreation or some other. Successful uh -huh. Yeah, It's the spectacle of how are these two dudes going to get along? Yeah. Like the the Silicon Valley guy is going to do it uh, is going to do a two person show with that guy from whatever the. What's the show where the, the Defense Air Force thing? I don't know. Whatever Schwartz is on. He's like, whatever. He's blown up since they oh, did Oh, yeah. Space Force? Is Space that, Force. Is yeah, he yeah. On that one? Yeah. But yeah. he was on something before that. Well, I mean, whatever. But it's, right. it, yes, 
it's a spectacle. We want to see them. We want to see them do this thing. It's like you know, I've done ASCAT many times in New York, and I'll never forget. It, it's the people laugh because they're in proximity to celebrities. And there was one time during an ASCAT where Amy Poehler and Chris Gethard, I think Gethard said, Amy, let's just go um, be a couple at a restaurant and be not funny. And then like I was going to be their waiter. I'm like, yeah, let's just do a, <laughs> let's do a not funny scene where we're just yeah. simply ordering a meal. I'll yeah. tell you the specials. And we just went and it was, it could not have been a more ordinary, banal conversation. And the audience in that at UCB up in Chelsea was dying like every third line because it's Amy or because it's gathered. Yeah. And, and it's, you know, I even got laughs and all I did, you know, I came up with one special that was from a restaurant I worked at in the 80s, you know? Oh, what was it? Do you remember? Yeah, it was a, uh, it was the, um, uh, grilled, grilled, uh, black and grilled scallops with a, a huh? mango chutney and uh, haricot vert. That's green beans on the side, and with that, you have a choice of super salad. And then, see, uh, that's good stuff. That's good gold. Stuff. Yeah. Just keep that in your pocket when you need to bring the house down. Everything any <laughs> improviser does, and anything you've ever lived in life, especially your most banal jobs that you can bring details to bear with, yes. is is only waiting to be turned into gold yeah. in improvisation. Yeah. Yeah, because that recognition. There, uh, I have to reach back. Someone said most of uh, improv is nostalgia, mm. and uh, um, <laughs> it's just it kind of has some ring to it as well. Mm-hmm. I've also heard people say that the reason Saturday Night Live is successful or has been successful as long is because they have different celebrities. Not to take any, too much away from the cast, but if you took out the celebrity, would the show have had the continued run that it's had? Yeah, probably, probably not because it's like they're they're effective despite their corporate marketers. I'll never forget like the first wave of people that were on SNL that I knew were around when Beth Cahill and Melanie Hutzel were there, and then uh, uh, Odenkirk and Conan and Smigel were all writers there, and we knew Bob a little bit. Uh, we knew Smigel and and Odenkirk from beginnings of Annoyance a little bit, and Odenkirk, I think it. I think the first episode I ever attended, like Chris Everett or somebody was the host. And and it was like, <laughs> wow, like it's Chrissy Everett, right? <laughs> right. And, and like, and I was a kid, you know, who watched Chris Everett and Billie Jean King and, you know, but it's, it was Martina. like, such, yeah. And Martina Navratilova <laughs> later. But I remember after that show, you know, you go to the after party and Odenkirk like just looked like he had had his ass kicked for a week and his. There's like bags under his eyes and he was so fucking exhausted. And, and I was like, how the hell can like writing sketches be so fucking exhausting? And he talked about the people that, that he had to get the sketches by. And I'm right. pretty sure he was the one that said the line in the writer's room. It was, what, it was like a bumper. It's um, um, SNL. We take great sketches and make them good. <laughs> <laughs> and so if you, put uh. a, if you put a celebrity on top of all that, then hey. Now you've got something to sell. Right. Well, getting back to, to Middleditch and Schwartz, in, in terms of the criticism, in terms of the level of improv or things like that, that's, that's certainly, you know, there, there's lots to talk about sure. there. But they had a pretty full house. Yeah. Uh, they had a full house. Yeah. And, you know, it was watchable yeah. um, as long as you didn't take the, the improv critic, you know, the inside view I don't know how it's done outside of the improv world because I've only 
really seen improvisers critique it. Yeah. You know, which is hard to say. But we could use more improv out there on the market. Sure. I don't know if there's any lessons that people have taken from that or not. I mean, my main point is it's a piece of improv on the market that doesn't look like other improv that's on the market. So that's good news for all of us that do improv. And it's, you know, I also coached Thomas on a team for two years. It was like on the last super team at IO that I coached. And there was a lot of people, I think he's brilliant, and there's a lot of people that took shots at him and that didn't like him and everything, and I loved him. And so I've always rooted for him because I feel like there was a couple times in that year and a half or so I coached this team where, like, you know, I just, it's that, it's now we're back to the campfire where I just got to have just, like, human conversations with him and, you know, relationship stuff and all the things, you know, sometimes improv team coaches are also part shrink. Yes, right. But just to see, you know, some of the torment of just being in your 20s and navigating all that and you're, you know, Canadian kid who's in Chicago doing this fucking thing and people are judging you and giving you shit and everything. And on the one hand, he doesn't care. And on the other hand, he he is part of that cocky archetype that he puts forward that is part of that mm-hmm. cocky mm-hmm. short form thing. But he's also mm-hmm. a great actor and he, he came up in theater sports. He came, came up through the Canadian ranks. Okay. And I don't give a fuck if anybody didn't like him. You know, there I was there was always one or two people like either on the team or added to the team that people didn't like that I always had to adopt and, and just mm-hmm. be like, you know, I have to believe in them. So I, what I'm doing is just like I want to own my bias. Like I enjoyed watching those guys have a good time. I enjoyed watching their cheap moves. I enjoyed watching their Tim Conway and Harvey Corman giggles at each other. Right, right, right. But it's also something that I recognize in me where, like, sometimes when I get, I just get too dour and I'm not fun and I'm, you know, I just get too bogged up in my ordinary shit. But that's also why I play with people like Jill Bernard sometimes, or I play with Rosowski or, you know, people that, you know, that now we're back to this roles conversation. I don't want to improvise with somebody who's like me. Like, I want to improvise with somebody who's who's anything but me, including, like, I'm going to fuck this up, to, you know, let's be silly. Okay. And mm-hmm. at first, my response might be like, come on, man. Let's just sit in a boat and pretend like we're fishing. <laughs> <laughs> but I've already done that. But you've done that. And you've done it for, what, that one, 20 years? 20 years, man. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of crazy. Um, you and I talked a little bit about... Um, the dislocations in, uh, I don't know, whatever the right word is, but in the improv community with certain theaters, you know, just vanishing or um, Mm -hmm. going through big upheavals, big changes. Mm -hmm. Um, The annoyance has seemed to be able to weather it a little bit better. Mm -hmm. And uh, we've talked a little bit about why, and maybe that'll be something to touch on here. But do you have a sense of what improv is going to look like when we are back at it? I mean, are you expecting there to be institutional theaters having a bigger, lesser role, uh, free agents having a bigger, lesser role? What do you think? I mean, I don't know, like anybody else doesn't. I suspect that there are some institutions that just aren't. Like, I know IO is not coming back. I think it'll be interesting to see what happens with Second City. I'm very... You know, I'm very happy that they tapped John Carr to come in and try to right the ship. But man, I also feel he's a great guy. He's a smart guy. He's really, you know, part of me believes if anybody can figure it out, he can. But I also feel so it's like, man, I had a little chat with him and like what he's walking into is just a. Oh, it's big. He actually, I just 
as we sit here today, just a, a day, uh, two days ago, we put out uh, an interview that John and I had scheduled before the announcement. Oh wow! Yeah, and uh, and I think he he definitely could be the guy to to do it. But there's also lots of layers that I mean, he's got. In some ways, he's got to be allowed to do it. For and, sure. And I don't. I, I hope that sounded right, but it's kind of like all the good ideas. If if it if it's not adopted or listened to or whatever, the things that got to the problems that have been there, yep. but were made that much more apparent in May and June. Yep. You know they're still there. I mean. Yeah. Well, I mean the one challenge is the the legacy of the toxic culture, and right. then another challenge is the legacy of the legacies. And then another mm-hmm. challenge is who's going to own this freaking place? Yeah. So it's going to be a completely different scenario if somebody who let's you know let's say like a famous alum who's got a lot of money who wants to quote unquote save it with a cabal of people who are also famous alums and mm-hmm. who've walked the halls and whatever. That's going to be one context. A completely different context. We're going to be is going to be like if Second City if they sell it you know if they go the way of like training companies where training companies get bought by, it's a, it's a flip this house proposition. They, mm-hmm. Training companies get bought by uh, an entity mm-hmm. and then that entity examines the bottom line, says what's not working and losing money, let's get rid of that. What is working and making money, let's do more of that. And then mm-hmm. it's all about showing on the books an appreciated value in this thing so that they can, if they can get a 20% net game, then they flip it and they sell it to, you know, they sell it to the next person. Right. And then you're right. a commodity. And then it's like, I mean, oh my God, then you're going to see institution on steroids. And those people are interested. Those people are interested in profit. And it's, mm-hmm. you know, that's one of the dynamics in our country that's fucked up is profit over product or service. Yeah, well, that's that is. I don't disagree with that as a as a huge distortion. But there's also another way you could frame that is to say that what I think has always been true about Second City is it has been more driven by the audience coming in. Yep. And so, in a sense, there's a capitalist aspect to it. I, I think you could just look at, you know, way back when Paul Sills left and Viola Spolin was told to pack her bags. Back then, it was kind of like we're we're going after butts in the seats and whatever that can produce, mm-hmm. and obviously they've had success with that. That brand name is worth something beyond the improv world. Yep. Whereas I O, um, I you couldn't say that in the same way. I don't think. Well, and and also Second City's not an improv theater. Second City's right. a sketch comedy theater, and right. and improv is one of the tools and mediums they use tools. in order to produce it. And I O I O is a an improv theater, but yeah. you know it it was just an it was a long form improvisation theater until a year or two after Dell died, and then Sharna put the the words Chicago's best improv comedy above the door, and then the, <laughs> the context was changed. I think I've ranted yeah. about this to you before. I think so. Yeah, but like like so I was just gonna say. Once she made that change, then that was that was the beginning of all of the last year's shit that came to the front of IO closing because the comedy and the showcase nature, the graduate school nature of that place, and the ambition of and the ambition and entitlement of the 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 people that were on the stages there. It lost the nature of what sustained IO for the first thirty or so years, which was 
a band of people who cared about and loved each other and would do anything for the theater to make it work. As soon as it was Chicago's best improv comedy, this culture of me, 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 look at me started taking hold. And then it was just erosion. Like it didn't happen yeah. overnight. It's like all of a sudden that's where we found ourselves. In yeah. my, just in my opinion. When I've had conversations with people connected to a number of institutions, um, Chicago and also outside of it, there, in prior interviews or in prior conversations, there was certainly a limit to how far people would seem to want to go or what, what they'd be okay saying publicly versus what they might say privately. Mm-hmm. And I think about, you know, you brought up Del Close, and um, it's, it's a, an interesting character to try to place in, in improv for a lot of reasons, but I think it's probably... F- pretty fair to say and you can you can disagree with me or provide color to this that he was the the jerk factor mm-hmm. was tolerated because he was revered as a genius yep but that element i think carries with it a fair amount of toxicity yep that is part of the foundation or pretty close to the foundation of a number of chicago institutions Yeah, it sets a precedent for a type of behavior and point of view that is acceptable in this realm of we're artists, you know, even into like the the realm of stand up now, which is like, what's, you know, what's the line, which is like, I think that, you know, a lot of people hate Chappelle because of some of the things that he's said about, you know, he did like 10 minutes on the trans community and, um, and I think the artistry of Dave Chappelle as a performer is far greater than that of Del Close as a, you know, artistic genius. And I think as a, I think Dave Chappelle reflects by doing and standing in the success or failure of, and, and taking the, taking the stones hurled at him, as opposed to Del, who was, as I see it, yeah, Sharna provided the you know, the opportunity for Dell's like last great reinvention of himself mm-hmm. where, where he was tolerated because he did have a measure of genius in him and the bad, the, the objectionable parts of him were overlooked because it was also a completely different time. Yeah. Um, I arrived in Chicago at 85. I think Dell started in 81 with them. So by the mm-hmm. time I got there, Baron's Barracudas was fairly fully formed nice alliteration Mm -hmm. for a couple of years and it was like the thing we were all aiming for because they were still transitioning out of david shepherd's improv olympics where there was this whole competition idea right um, which was like concurrent with theater sports and stuff starting and you know before comedy sports but he even like i had never met anybody like dell and I, you know, I was a kid that was raised by a Notre Dame football playing father and a St. Mary's mother, and I played sports. And you know, right. I met Del Close. I'm like, who the fuck is this guy? And I was just mm-hmm. looking to get out of this family I was born into that didn't seem to have a blueprint for what you know somebody mm-hmm. who wanted to be in the quote unquote business was. And then I run into Del Close, and he was so drastically different from anything that I'd known mm-hmm. that I just took it all in and mm-hmm. wasn't able to be objective about you know, some of the shit that he said or some of the point of views that he held. Well, it probably didn't land on you. No, it didn't land on me. I mean, I was still, I was just a guy looking for approval. Yeah. I was looking, a guy looking for approval and validation from this entity that I just had no, I felt just inferior. Like I, like I, 
I learned that I was a slow reader in sixth grade and never recovered. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and this guy's read every book on the planet. Well, there's a disconnect here. So then it's like, how, it, it's like, how do I make coach like me? How do I make, you know, coach put me in the rotation, you know, to get back to basketball terms. But for mm-hmm. sure. Yeah, the, the, they said, I'll give it one more chance. I'll one skip more forward chance. a little bit do more. Do not <laughs> dribble. Get the ball to a guard. <laughs> but I, but I, I think the point that his, that Dell's flavor of toxicit, uh, toxic pieces of Dell floated through for sure IO and, and for sure Second City and for sure UCB. Mm-hmm. And maybe I don't know if it has anything to do with it, but it, it was it was interesting that at the beginning, and I think still like Mick was fairly unimpressed by both Jell, Dell, and Keith, and, and so like the annoyance kind of came out of this "fuck all the rules, screw everything, we're gonna you know build our own point of view about stuff." And so in a way, I was lucky to have never gotten cast on a stage at Second City, and that I was lucky to be a part of a group of people at annoyance that was. You know, we were too stupid to know that we shouldn't try to open a theater. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right, right, right. Um, but well, I was going to ask go about sort of the both the, the viewpoint of whether it's a, a Mick or the Annoyance community as to Adele or Dell as to the Annoyance, what kind of uh, viewpoints there were of, of each other. Can you expand on that a little bit? I mean, Mick always hated the rules. And... You know, step one is there would be no Annoyance Theater without Mick Napier. So mm-hmm. that's step one. So then to whatever degree, you know, Mick flavors and seasonings are on, quote unquote, on people. I mean, the one thing, you know, the other rule was anybody can do a show at, at the Annoyance if you're a nice person. So that's in that's an interesting invite. And Mick can be as vulgar and verbally toxic as anybody. Mick has said some horrible, objectionable shit, but it's usually about himself. Okay. <laughs> um, and, and and that's about like I'm not gonna uh, I won't talk about that. But but people yeah, that know yeah. Mick they've they've experienced that. And our our theater was pretty non-binary and gay from the jump, you know. And we were all the gays were our gays and the straights were their straights and there's and everything in between. And like nobody really. It's like Eric, like uh, Eric Waddell, one of the co-founders. Like we all knew he was gay before he needed to have an official meal with each of us, and and he said he describes our he he describes every exchange regardless of how it happened was like um, there's something I need to tell you I'm gay great Eric pass the salt right what about the 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 early experience for for women in the uh, or females in the in the uh, annoyance at the beginning was that also uh, more balanced uh, than. Yeah, and it sounds like either of those places would have uh, either the other communities had been. For sure, it was more balanced than the other communities. The yeah. like the very first show we did before we were even annoyance was Splatter Theater, mm-hmm. and that was you know it's a takeoff of horror movies, and so there has to be a, an ingenue who ends up the you know the star of the show, and then that's where Ellen Stone King was. You know that was her first annoyance show, and then she was the dame in Coed Prison Sluts. And in a way, like the stars of co-ed prison sluts were Ellen Stone King, Susan Messing, and Kalua the dog. And then everybody else was sort of around that. And I think, you know, it would be stupid for me to talk that much more about like any women's experiences. But I could certainly say the women that I met and performed with at The Annoyance were some of the most, you know, strong, you know, rooted in their own agency and voice as much as they're rooted in the this sort of 
non-defined ethos of the annoyance, which is just get your shit out there, you know, speak your truth, be who you are fearlessly. And, you know, there were, annoyance was a place, I think we were fairly instrumental in helping to bring the Chicago community together. And there's, and Amy played with, Amy Poehler played with screw puppies, you know, a lot of women that were strong. Um, Dratch, Dratch would do some stuff there. A.D. Bryant, whatever. Like, I'm really bad at remembering names and who did what. (laughs) But it was also, you know, don't forget, it was Mick Napier that went to Second City and changed the the gender balance in the the main stage cast because it was always four and two, but Mick was the one in um, Paradigm Lost that changed it to three women and three men, and that stands today. So I think, I don't think that the social importance, you know, vis-a-vis all the spotlights shed on the equity of, of gender and racial balance, none of that existed back in those days. But I think because we were at least a sort of queer, non-binary, and friends theater, in a way, our makeup was more inclusive than the other places. And I think IO and Second City had has, I think the exclusive nature of how they were set up has been part of what's bitten them in the ass, you know, in these mm-hmm. modern times. Did that answer your question? Yeah. yeah, I think so. If if not, I'll I'll edit. Yeah, edit. Yeah, just fits. <laughs> make me sound some. Make me sound like I really hung in there. Yeah, but it's yeah. yeah. And I also, you know, the other thing I will say is that I think there will be. I think you said something about the free. Like I'm a free agent. I haven't been part of a, a specific institution for 20 years, and some of it is just the whole institutional nature of institutions. And mm-hmm. so when Mark and I first started doing Bass Prob, and we learned. You know, we were among the first that learned, oh, it's easier to tour two people than it is whatever. Right. And that, you know, early on we became, you know, we were kind of the first wave of train the trainers. So like teaching other teachers. And so by the time, you know, I I kind of officially retired from the annoyance in like 2002, I guess it was, 2001, 2002. And I said, I love you guys and I'm in full support, but I've, you know, I've put my 13 or 14 years in and, you know, I'm going to see if this dumbass fishing idea works. And then, but I got to do something new. And I think it's, you know, one of the problems with institutions is like, if if all of a sudden people find themselves in that 10 to 15 year range, I think, I think instinctively they know I should try something else, but you, that means you have to start all over and where you were the all-star server on the floor. Now you're back to rolling silverware and marrying ketchups for another restaurant that, (laughs) you know, serving something you never serve. So it's, um, the black and scallops are only done well at one restaurant that I know. Yeah. Black and scallops (laughs) with mango chutney and Harry Cover. Um, yeah, I I mean, I think it's going to be interesting to see, and I hope there is more, I, I hope, well, the other piece of all this, I think, is everybody's investing a lot of energy, parallel to the comment you said, where I think there's an emphasis in some corners of improvisation today for improvisers to be everything. I think it's counterproductive. I think part of the psychological battle that's in front of us where more inclusivity and diversity and inclusion is concerned is people need to get out of the mentality of I need to do everything. Because the paralysis that comes from I need to do everything to make sure there's equity across the board everywhere is a blockage for you actually engaging in a a tiny piece of activism every day. I mean, it's going to take a million people doing a million different little things in order for a movement to start. A movement's not going to come out of a bunch of people doing the same thing because that's what the past four years has, I think, <laughs> been on the, you know. It, it's, 
Although there's also got to be a little element of are are you going in the in the same or at least similar direction too for that to be a movement as opposed to everybody's going a million different directions as well. Um, I agree, but it's but the like so right now. And that's not a political commentary. <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Yeah. That's right. But I mean, specific specific to improvisation, there's right now because of the injustice and because of the causes of this exclusivity, this race exclusivity, the whiteness, the white dudeness and flannel exclusivity that's existed. There's now a, a call online where it's easiest for accountability. And so, cool, fair enough. And there's one of the things I believe that is once you get 100 people to join a movement, 30 of those people will be counterproductive to the movement. And then it just, and then it just, because it's also my belief that we'd be bet we'd probably be better off if somewhere along the way we had changed our name from the United States of America to the Harmonious States of America. Because I think the idea of being united is counterproductive, and I think it's also a trapping of the patriarchy. <laughs> Different <laughs> podcast, <laughs> um, but I think, but I think that you're not taking an activistic role if you're just having a, if you're just having a virtue signal parade and screaming for accountability, and that's all that you're doing. For me, in my part, it's you know, as I'm now less than a year and a half away from sixty, like somebody has to teach the next teachers. And, and mm-hmm. all of the, most of 80% to 90% of the institutions that I'm working for or doing stuff for are either run by women or in support of BIPOC leadership. Mm-hmm. And it's not my style to like name names or like, you know, like I have, I have meetings and conversation and interpersonal time. Oh man, we're back to the beginning of the podcast. <laughs> I'm, I've been striving to and have been having just like one-on-one meetings with people and like, how can I be of service to you? And I don't want to lead anything. I just, you know, I'd like, if I'm welcome to be in the writer's room to help, I'm, I'm there. And I believe a teacher's job is to train the next teachers. And so I want to train the next teachers, especially if they're women or BIPOC, but I'll train any teachers. Mm-hmm. And yeah. it's, you know, and I'm okay with knowing that I'm not doing enough in the face of some people's calls for accountability. And that's okay if some people think I'm not. Like, I also know that I'm not and I could be doing more and I've got enough things that I'm dealing with my therapist about. But it's going to be really interesting once the pandemic kind of comes to a close. I think we're going to see even like, I was going to say a year, but maybe even two years of course mm-hmm. correction and course adjustment. And I think I think there's going to be some hard realities and truths in real life that are going to be faced that are different than facing harsh realities and truths online. And that, I, I don't know well, how that's going to go at all. And that's one of the things that institutions or collections of people you can work out your goals together in a common forum, whereas if you're online, everybody can put stuff out there. And I feel like there is an aspect of consensus on what a lot of the goals are. Mm -hmm. Although I also feel like it's happened many times in my life, and this is something I don't think I would have said in my 20s, but I, I would say now, is that there are times where you think, okay, we're we're talking about this, and then you find out, oh, it wasn't it wasn't quite the same. You know, mm-hmm. so if you don't have 
that time <laughs> in front of the fire mm-hmm. <laughs> with the dog. And thank you for feeding him, by the way. You're very welcome. Um, Good boy. Good boy. <laughs> uh, <laughs> then it could end up being that when we get back together, you know, which is like, well, I thought, I thought you were, I thought you were on board with this or, or, or whatever it might be. Um, I think by making, if we make part of the goal, if we're, if we're solid about what we think improv is and what it should do, and part of that is the human connection, the valuing of everybody's experience and being able to, to uh, as a skill of an improviser, to, to understand and reach out and listen hard in, in every aspect. Mm then it should be that those kind of things should naturally flow out of our communities and and ourselves. Well, but it does take effort to listen hard and to get over yourself, mm-hmm. um, which it, it, it is, a, is its own skill, I think, because you got to be comfortable with taking a lesson when you need to, just listening when you ought to keep your mouth shut. Yep. And there's... A no matter how short the bridge between idea and implementation, that bridge has lots of landmines on it. And it's the same bridge between listening and responding. We're always, even if you're listening hard, you're always, there's always part of your brain that's listening to yourself, that's listening to your fears, that's listening to your psychological and emotional makeup that's taking you on a journey to be in the preposterous position to desire to be whatever a professional maybe improviser is or, yeah. or, or, you know, what, what is even an improviser? I mean, I guess I'm a professional improviser, but I think if I told 10 different, if I told 10 people that I'm a professional improviser and I say, write down what that means to you, I think I would get 10 different meanings and <laughs> including, including mine, if I record different meanings every day, but it's, right. but I mean, I really think, the movement for change has to be like a war and there has to be people that are firing cannons and there has to be people with flamethrowers and there has to be spies and there has to be diplomats and submarine commanders and pilots. And so we need positions in improv. (laughs) Yes. And scene. (laughs) Well, Joe, this has been, I I could talk to you for another hour and we will call scene on this episode. Um, Beautiful. uh, Just, yeah. Appreciate your friendship. Yeah. You know, we didn't even talk neuroscience, so we've got a starting point maybe for our next uh, conversation together. I'll bring the dog. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Thanks, buddy. Really, really enjoyed it. What a great way to finish season three. I appreciate that Joe has incorporated a host of improv traditions along the way, but also that he will take it back to his time at the Annoyance and the notion that taking care of yourself first will lead the audience to a better experience. I wouldn't say that we got to any final conclusions on the importance of the downtime and heightening and deepening our awareness generally and with those that we regularly perform or interact with, but it remains something that I know most or all of us long for to be together. Joe has continued to teach and stay connected with the improv world in many ways, and one of the more interesting things that he's done is to host a series of story chain events that you might want to check out, particularly if you're feeling disconnected from other improvisers and creatives. Look those up at Joe Bill Teaches on Facebook for more information on those sessions, and I'll make sure there are links on the episode webpage at improvcomedyconnection.com. 
With the conclusion of season three, I'm going to take a short break to evaluate any potential changes to the format. I've certainly received a number of suggestions for guests, and I think we've got a great lineup shaping up for next season already. I'd love to hear from you regarding any adjustments or tweaks to make this podcast more useful to you. Just drop me a line at wit at improvcomedyconnection.com. So with that, let me thank you for letting me, Witchiller, continue to have the privilege of being your host. I'm an improviser out of Milwaukee with Fishsticks Comedy. You can check us out at fishstickscomedy.com and you can connect with me on social media at Witchiller on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. You can also go to witchiller.com for additional content and resources to help you in your comedy or communication journey. Thanks again for tuning in to the Improv Comedy Connection.